if there's anything you don't like, just go, yeah, I'm not going to talk about that. And we'll put it in anyway, but you know. <laughs> Perfect. I'm just kidding. Perfect. So we're ready to go. Here we go. up on It's Not Human Sexuality. And the judge decides that surrogacy and this arrangement is human trafficking. You know, this is one of my favorite topics. Let's say a couple is doing home insemination with a known donor that's unscreened. (laughs) They're just using fresh ejaculate at home, syringe, turkey base, or whatever. Can you conceive children? from the genetics of someone who has passed. And now the technology is certainly there. You know, your liver doesn't inherit in a state and your cornea and your ligaments, but your, your DNA does. <laughs> yeah, the next Ocean's yeah. Eleven will be about breaking into a sperm Yes, bank. a sperm bank, uh, yes. <laughs> great, <laughs> Absolutely. I got, no, I, thanks. I Ocean's Eleven plus one. for a while now on that, but. <laughs> So welcome to It's Not Human Sexuality, the show that goes beyond sexuality to reproductive health. Understanding the foundations of reproductive health allows you and the ones you love to make better decisions about your health, mind, and relationships. Joining us today is Ellen Trackman. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, in this episode, we're going to learn all the nuances of reproductive law when it comes to third-party parenting. In fact, we're going to learn what third-party parenting actually is. So I'm Dr. B. And I'm Mandy Johnson, and this is It's Not Human Sexuality. Yeah, so brief, briefly, Ellen's rocks, right? So she founded, <laughs> tra- <laughs> she founded Trackman Law Center in order to bring dedicated and compassionate legal representation to those turning to assisted reproductive technology to grow their families. She's also the co-founder of Colorado Surrogacy, a Colorado-focused surrogacy matching and support agency, and she writes a weekly column on assisted reproductive technology legal issues for the website Above the Law. And co-host the podcast, I Want to Put a Baby in You, which I have been on. Yes. One of our favorite guests. (laughs) Yeah. I I bet you say that to everybody. No. Mm -mm. Okay. In 2019, she co-founded Colorado Fertility Advocates, a nonprofit organization supporting fertility patients, professionals, and advocates. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. All of that. I do all of that. Yes. (laughs) So to start off, you know, I I must confess, I don't exactly remember when we met. I think it was at a, a panel discussion we were both at. Um, do you remember that? I don't remember first meeting you either. I definitely, I think you're right, that it was some kind of panel presentation. And I remember asking you to get coffee with me, like awkwardly asking you on a first date, you know, you don't yeah. remember that. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, ah, oh, this Betsy woman, she knows a lot of stuff. And I think I was somewhat newer in the area at that time and trying to get to know everyone. And you were absolutely fascinating. And I appreciated you taking the time to meet with me. That's so funny because I had the same reaction. I was like, this is somebody I definitely need to get to know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So full disclosure here, though, time has passed. And Ellen uh, and her law firm are now part of my other company, Cryogam. They're on our our advisory board because with Colorado, well, with any type of state and particularly Colorado, we have reproductive issues and law issues. And 
cryogam is no different that we deal in that. And so it's always good to have a good attorney in, in your corner. <laughs> we we are honored to help and to hopefully <laughs> stop you from having any real issues. Yes, of course. Just that's the whole goal is to have no issues, right? Kind of tell us how you, your path to this, how you got into reproductive law. Yeah, sure. I'm totally natural. No, not at all. Um, So I actually always recall in law school when they asked us, they said, okay, raise your hand if you want to do litigation. And like half the class raises their hand. And I said, okay, now everyone raise their hand if you want to do corporate law. And like the other half raises their hand. And that was it. Like that was the the two choices when we were in law school, litigation or corporate. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot more out there. But despite that, um, after law school, I ended up working for the ninth largest firm in the world in their investment management group doing hedge fund law, which obviously is the the precursor to surrogacy. No, not in any way, but um, <laughs> I was like, yeah. hedge funds. And I definitely can tell you, I'd go to parties and so I'd be like, what do you do? And I'd like fall asleep listening to myself. It was terrible. So I can tell you being in this area is much more entertaining at parties, way better stories. But so I was working at this, this firm in San Francisco um, doing hedge fund law. And at the time, I was living with some really good friends who were a gay couple. And they were trying to figure out their path to becoming parents. And they were looking into it and thinking they did want to be parents. And at that same time, my sister was going through infertility. And she's who co-hosts the podcast with me now. And she's very open about her, her story and her struggles. Um, and I became familiar with egg donation and saw this contract. And it was so fascinated that one it was so horribly written that I was like wow an an attorney does this like I could do this and I could do this better because this person did a really terrible job at this particular contract but no maybe that that was an off day for them um but I became (laughs) really fascinated (laughs) by assisted reproductive technology being an area of law and I kept getting in my head like I should do this and of course it was another seven years of working doing hedge funds before and having kids of my own and then we decided to move from San Francisco to Denver and I started working at a corporate job here doing M&A, where you're selling big businesses to other big businesses. Also, um, not fun for party discussion. But I was like, I, and I'll, I'll be very open that I'm, so a lot of bad things happened all at once, where my stepbrother committed suicide, and my grandmother died, and I had to have knee surgery, and I was lied up watching TED Talks while I was recovering from this knee surgery. They were like, don't regret your life. And I was like, I, I'm not going to regret my life. So I decided to quit this job I was not feeling fulfilled at and start this dream I'd have for so long. And so I started a firm specializing in assisted reproductive technology law and went to all the conferences, read all the stuff and just started um, building my practice in the area. And it's been an amazing journey ever since and no regrets. Very cool. Yeah, it's very cool. I I got to tell you, I just don't see you as a hedge fund attorney. What? Just, I know, like the, I just, that's kind of a shocker for me. But I think that's, that's fair. I, I feel like I'm too, too fun to be one. You and I both know that the courts can't keep up with reproductive technology. And so there's a lot of issues around that. And just briefly explain what third party parenting is, you know, for our listeners. Yes. And we would say third-party reproduction versus okay. parenting because okay. parenting could mean something else, which is True actually that. another another area that's fun to talk about. So generally, there, there's so many different names where we talk about assisted reproductive technology, 
third-party reproduction, collaborative reproduction, family formation. There's like no clean name for this. But generally, we're talking about when someone else needs to help you to have a child. So the the big categories are an egg donor. So that's your third party who's helping someone else have a child, a sperm donor, embryo donation, or a surrogate, or some combination thereof, where someone else, some third party is helping you to have a child. And then, of course, when there's someone else involved, you have lots of fun legal issues. Right. And so in in our world, we look at um, surrogacy as traditional surrogacy, where the the um, egg donor per se is actually going to carry the pregnancy in behalf of the genetic material, whereas the other is a gestational carrier, where they're just carrying the pregnancy of a, a formed embryo that was made by an oocyte or egg donor and a sperm donor. Betsy, I get, to, I get to update your language because even oh. like the terminology keeps changing. So when I started, it was called traditional surrogacy where a woman who is genetically related to the child carried the child. And now the new hip term, so now you're all cut up, is genetic surrogacy, which ah. is genetically related to the child. So that we've seen a lot of shift in kind of documents and legal references to genetic surrogacy. And genetic surrogacy legally is generally disfavored. So many states that have specific statutes say this only applies to gestational surrogacy, only where the surrogate is not related to the child. There's a few places where it does include it, but those are rarer. And I think partially, I mean, one, there's like more, um, more like an emotional complication element. I mean, there's one, one thinking like you can be an egg donor and you can be a surrogate. So why can't you be both at the same time? And the other thinking is like, well, it's a little bit more complicated when, when you combine them. Um, but the big thing is that I've heard the statistic that gestational surrogacy where the surrogate is not related is like 95% of all surrogates now, surrogacies now. So wow. an over overwhelming amount of surrogacy is where she's not genetically related to the child. So when you say uh, not favored, does that also mean maybe not legal? Yes. So depending on the state. So surrogacy law varies state to state. So, for example, in New York, they had um, criminalized compensated surrogacy, both genetic and gestational, for about 30 years after this terrible um, Mary Beth Whitehead case in the 1980s, where Mm -hmm. it was a traditional surrogate. She changed her mind and tried to run away with a child. It got pretty ugly. So after that, a couple states outlawed surrogacy. And we've only in the last like five plus years seen those states kind of go into this reversal mode, where in 2015, um, I think that was when New Jersey reversed. And last five years or so, they reversed. And then New York finally came around where February 15th this year, 2021, they their, their new law became effective. However, so now you can have compensated surrogacy in New York, but only gestational. So right. they left their criminal proceedings, their, those provisions that you can't compensate uh, traditional or genetic surrogate in New York. So they can still be um, <clears throat> a gestational surrogate, but not be paid. Or genetic, genetic. surrogate. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, yes. So it's not criminal, but it's still complicated where like no contract would be upheld, et cetera. So the law is still not supportive in New York of that. So just in that realm with the language changing and you can imagine how the courts are not prepared. For sure. So yes. obviously there are case precedences that are helpful, but aren't always applicable. 
And the one case that you talk about, which is landmark, is the the Mary Be- is it Mary Beth Whitehead? Yeah, yeah, Whitehead. <clears throat> that- yeah, she briefly she um, contracted with a couple to uh, be their surrogate and changed her mind. Right. Yes. And um, I don't know how if your listeners are curious about that change in their mind. I will. I will say we get that question a lot as both an attorney and someone who um, works with a matching organization where intended parents are so worried that someone will carry their child and then change their mind. And there's an attorney out in California, um, Andy Vorzimer, who's held, he's done these statistics where it's like 140 out of 144,000 surrogacy arrangements, only 13 gestational surrogates have changed their mind and like 83 intended parents have changed their mind. So obviously they're like low numbers compared to the 144,000, but actually the fear should be more that the intended parents change their mind. And there's been some pretty scary high profile cases where um, like the Sherry Shepard case where she was intended as an intended mother in a surrogacy arrangement and then decided she did not want to be a mother to that child. So explain intended parent. Yes. Um, so that's the term we use for someone who plans to be a parent and is going through this um, through third party reproduction. And that can be we can use it for an egg donor where they could be the, the intended mother. The intended parent could be the person carrying the pregnancy or in surrogacy. The intended parents aren't carrying the pregnancy. So that could be a single woman where you know, the surrogate's gen- carrying her genetic child or not genetic child um, if they use a donor. It could be a couple um, straight or um, it could be a gay couple and um, all different kinds of variations. But the intended parents are those who are planning to parent this child. So and- what would happen then in a situation where the intended parent changes their mind in a surrogacy? Yeah. So, I mean, even that, look, I mean, you heard the numbers, right? So even that luckily is very, very unlikely. And, you know, people go through so much to get to this where they've gone through years of infertility and surrogacy is not inexpensive, as you can imagine, that it's very rare. But so cases like that, the Sherry Shepard case, uh, the court said, no, you, you are a parent to this child. And that, so she was alleging, you know, fraud that she was tricked into it. And the court said, said, no, you're a parent to this child. And, um, I think in that case, she just pays, you know, a huge amount of child support every month to the the father who's raising the child. Was this her, was this her oocyte that was used or was it a a donor? It was a donor. Hmm. That might be what, that might've been why she felt she could back out. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly that element of how people feel about the ties of a genetic related child or not, but I'm, I could see that definitely as being an element about her having those feelings. So, um, what about, uh, birth rights? And when we have, a, I know there was a, a pretty big case of a gay couple who had two children. One was considered a United States citizen. The other one wasn't. Yeah. Are you familiar with that case? <laughs> Very familiar. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there's actually a series of cases where gay couples who went abroad for surrogacy um, then would try to bring their children, their child or their children home to the United States. And the government would say, your child is not a U.S. citizen. And so the twin one was especially stark and like shocking to hear that there was these twins born at the same time, um, born, you know, by the same surrogate in Canada. And when they came to the U.S. consulate, they said, 
show us the DNA testing. And in that case, the dads, so both dads are on both birth certificates. So legally, there is zero difference under Canadian law, as and it should be the same under U.S. law. But they said, show us the DNA testing. And the way this couple conceived is that they had the same egg donor, but they fertilized some eggs with one part, with one of the men's sperm and some with the other. And one was a U.S. slash Canadian dual citizen. And his husband was an Israeli citizen. <clears throat> so when they planned to move to Los Angeles to be closer to family to help with these twins and tried to bring the twins home, they said, Oh, only the child genetically related to the U.S. citizen is a, is a U.S. citizen and has rights to come to the U.S. Despite both having the same legal parents, there's actually I thought that one's shocking. There's another one that where we had the dads come on our podcast. I want to put a baby in you podcast. The the Mize case, Mize case mm-hmm. where they both dads were U.S. citizens, but it like really gets into like the weeds about the immigration code, but. Like the shorthand is the immigration code says if a child is born of the marriage, then it's a U.S. citizen if one of them's a U- if one parent's a U.S. citizen. If the child is born out of wedlock, and yes, like our immigration code uses the term wedlock, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> um, wow. If they're born out of wedlock, then you have to be re- genetically related to one of the parent. You have to be related to one of the parents, and there's like this residency requirement that has to be you've like resided within five years, etc. So, like, absolutely shocking. So, this really adorable couple. They met in New York. Um, both U.S. citizens. One was um, born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. Like you can't really get more like American than Mississippi. <laughs> but he met his partner. He met his husband in New York, and his husband, his mom, was a U.S. citizen. But he grew up in England, and so um, when they at, he he tells this really sweet story about how at their wedding, um, his his husband's friend from college in the U.K. was like. If you guys want kids, I can't do a I can't do a British accent, but she's like, if you want kids, I am there for you. And like after some time went by, they like thought about it and they're like, we should get in touch with her. Um, and they reach out and she's like, they're like, we'll just like do a chat, like, how are you? And then like a month later, we'll like raise the subject. And he's they call and she's like, Oh, you ready for kids? <laughs> so she wanted to carry their child. So they used an egg donor. She gestationally carried their child in England. And then when they tried to bring their child home, the, so here's what's even more fascinating. So they tried to use the U.S. So the, the guy who grew up in, in Mississippi, sorry, if I use names, it'd be, be simpler. But anyway, so the, the man who grew up in Mississippi, they used his genetically related embryo first, and that transfer failed. And then there's like, okay, throw in the next best embryo, which happened to be the husband who grew up in England. That one took. So this is their daughter. When they go to bring her home, so they actually did make it home, but later they had to do testing and to try to get um, recognition of US, um, her US citizenship. And they said, no, show us a DNA test. And the DNA test shows that the child was related to the, um, the husband, the, the father that grew up in the UK. So he didn't meet this residency requirement. So they were considering them under the unwed section, even though they are a wed. Sorry, it's like so in the weeds. <laughs> I'm sorry. So here's the deal. Complicated. The, the, um, the US, the US Depart- Department of State only thinks that you are born of a marriage if you both parents are genetically related to the child. If one is not genetically related to the child, they say that you're born out of wedlock. 
And so that's why like immigration equality, all these other organizations have been really active, like jumping on that because it's clear discrimination against LGBT couples who will not, who will always have one partner generally who's not genetically related to the right. child. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and imagine how in the weeds it was before marriage equality. So where they don't even recognize a legal marriage. And then now it sounds like they still don't with the type of language that they're using. Well, and the, the government was claiming like, oh, we're not discriminating because, you, know, you know, a married heterosexual couple, if one was not genetically related, they'd have the same problem. It'd be considered the child's unwed. But the truth is when you go to the consulate, they don't, they, it's discretionary whether you ask for DNA testing. So they generally are unlikely to ask a heterosexual couple for DNA testing, unlike two dads who show up and they're like, okay, who's the dad, right? Which is like always offensive. And I, I, yeah. who's the dad? We are. <laughs> yeah, we, we both are. We both are. Exactly. So Okay. So yeah. they need to maybe start using words genetic donor. I mean, I don't know, or maybe just change the laws or maybe not be stupid. I don't know. Well, um, the good news is with these series of cases, we've had a lot of progress where a Trump appointee um, judge in Georgia ruled, so that UK case, he ruled in favor of them. The Josh Banks, the twin case, they have repeatedly, um, so they won on the, they won in the Ninth Circuit for their child to be granted a passport. So we've, we've seen a lot of progress on those cases. That's good encouraging that is good do you see more issues maybe in um same same sex couples where it's um two men versus two women do you see more issues in that come to light so of those immigration cases um there's three or four and one is with two women that have the similar issue where there's not the genetic connection but yes i think we see it much more uh, with gay men. And bizarrely, the so in these immigration cases, the, the Department of State has said, okay, this unwed wed thing, we are actually going to say that if you are a woman that carried the child, but you're not genetically related. So for example, if a couple did reciprocal IVF, if you're not familiar, so if you have yeah. two women and one has their eggs retrieved and the other carries the child, they're, they say, well, if you carry the child and you're not genetically related, we're still going to count that as being born of the of the marriage. So they have this like exception, which me, which kind of makes their rules inconsistent as well. We're like, yeah. OK, if you're insisting on genetics and how why is there an exception here? So there, there's that lighter that part, because it sounds like the only difference is the uterus. Right. So I guess having having kind of two bites of the apple for a person with a uterus that you can, you know, be genetically related and have been the person who carried the child. Interesting. So it's extra discrimination for the for the gay for men. men out there trying yeah. to. Yeah. Wow. My next question was going to be, so where do you come in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you sort of clarified the need for a reproductive attorney to get people out of the weeds on this. Well, I will say like my my day to day job is like way more boring than most of these cases where, you know, if you are entering into an egg donation arrangement, you're going to each have an attorney to talk about those important issues of, you know, are there limitations on this donation? So, for example, if you if I was donating to someone else, can they 
um, if they have 20 embryos and then they have two kids, can they donate further those 18 embryos? Um, do I feel strongly about them not donating to research? How do I want, you know, do I have a say in that? Um, also, what's our intent in terms of disclosure? Um, can they tell the child about my identity before 18 right away? Um, what other obligations do we have to disclose information to each other? And a basic is like, if I find out I have a genetic condition, then I should tell them and vice versa. If I, if, you know, my recipient has a child and they show up with a genetic issue, they should let me know because that could affect me, mm -hmm. my family, my mm -hmm. future children, et cetera. So working at all of those. So similarly with surrogacy agreements, which are even longer because there's a long period and lots of complicated issues to think about. I mean, even these days with COVID where it's become a hot issue and hopefully this will be resolved shortly as time passes. But right now it's a big issue of like, if someone is acting as a gestational carrier, will she get the COVID vaccine? And there is a lot of strong feelings on different areas. And so it's almost become like a matching issue of like, if you're a good fit for each other, depending on how you feel about the COVID vaccine. Wow, that's a big one for me. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, for Do sure. Yeah, that's, that would be. Betsy, um, are you, are you an anti-vaxxer? I, I am know. not an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> but my kids are vaccinated and I'm vaccinated. But I would have some questions about the COVID vaccine with a sure, pregnancy. right? Because yeah. it's so new. Pregnancy yep. is this unique stage. Like, yep. does it affect the child? Yep. Yeah. So lots of like very legitimate questions and concerns. Sure. Um, but yeah, so most of my day is like contract review, education, negotiation. But then for like my weekly articles, I get to write about kind of like the thing. Luckily, it's never, luckily, knock on wood, it's never been one of my cases so far. But when the <laughs> cases go wrong, that's what I get to write about and do the podcast about and um, find about what what happens on the edge when some, when things really go wrong. But what happens? So what would be a, the biggest flaw you've seen in this type of because it is kind of contractual law, right? I mean, in some regards. So what would be the biggest loophole? So I'll tell you one case that still like boggles my mind. And this, not to like keep plugging my podcast, but we had these, I was so honored that we finally, after like a year begging them, they finally came on our podcast. But so there is this couple out of Virginia. So gay couple, married, really great guys. They went through surrogacy to have children. So they had two daughters. Um, I believe their first two surrogates were in California. And then they had friends who were like, hey, we have an extra embryo. Um, I think maybe it was actually two embryos. We would really like to donate them to you if you would consider having another child. We see you're such great dads. And they said, you know, at first they thought their family was complete. They're like, okay, maybe we'll do this. So they decided to go through having a third child. They went through an agency to find a surrogate and their surrogate, so gestational carrier, she's going to carry this donated embryo, was in Wisconsin. And Wisconsin is like Colorado, where there's no law, there's no specific surrogacy law, but um, but generally the courts are very friendly, where they grant pre-birth orders, they recognize legal parents, like it's generally pretty smooth. So that's how Colorado is. And this is why I'm scared for Colorado because of this Wisconsin case. So everything seems to be going smoothly, like their surrogate got pregnant, um, everything's going well, they're really excited for the, the arrival of their son. And somehow they are appointed this really extreme judge. And the judge decides that surrogacy and this arrangement is human trafficking. He literally oh, calls wow. them human traffickers in one of the decisions. And he denies them parental rights. 
He so baby's now born. He says they are not not the legal parents. He said the gestational carrier. She is definitely not the legal parent. The baby is a legal orphan. I mean, it, oh. it just like got worse and worse. And then he appointed like his buddy as like the guardian ad litem to be an attorney specifically for the child, who just like rang up like a hundred thousand dollars in legal bills. Obviously supporting this like extreme vision of the judge, and it was just this nightmare for these poor dads and. But fortunately, like they had means, although they talk about like refinance, they had to like remortgage their house three times to pay half a million or so in legal bills to fight this for their son. And at this time, their son is like home with them, at least in Virginia. So they they have like temporary custody, but no legal rights. But they talk about in the middle of the night, they're like scared, like they could come and take our son at any moment and he could just be thrown into the foster care system. And who knows what could happen to this boy that we love so much. And only once the judge stepped down to run for the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, where they assigned a new judge. So a year of like this absolute nightmare. And then this new judge is like, what is going on here and reversed everything and gave them parental rights. But I mean, what if that judge didn't step down? I mean, the the whole story is horrible and heartbreaking. And after that, they worked really hard to pass a law in Virginia, which is called Jacob's Law, after their son, which um, recognizes the recipients of embryo donations as as parents. So that was that was a big thing that they did. Wow. How was this on any level in the best interest for Jacob? Yeah. It's not, right? What was this judge doing? You like have he, two he people who put loving a lot family. of family. I know. I mean, at what? least they What's had the goal here? has to be. Uh, so so well, I know, but I do some bonding. Least, like, but I mean, goodness gracious. Yeah. I can't imagine. That's horrifying. That's not totally horrifying. right. It's, it, they, it almost sounds like a moral judgment, not a legal judgment mm-hmm. that was handed down. Yeah. I and know. Absolutely. You, it was that, you know, only a married man and woman can be, I don't, you know, it's so extreme. Wow. Okay. So that is, and that's what we were talking about a little bit earlier. These are precedences that go on the books that people can start using as arguments to support so, Fortunately, so that, one, cases. that one is not a precedent. Luckily, the with the new judge, everything was yeah, yeah. So everything was reversed. Um, but yeah, so so luckily that is not. I mean, I mean there are so like of the crazy cases, like there was one. Um, so on a sperm donation, so um, a same sex couple in Mississippi, they used an anonymous sperm donor to have a child. Like very, you know, still very common for same sex female couples. And in their case, when they split up and were going through a divorce, the biologically related mom argued that her now ex was not a legal parent to the child. And these courts, which again had these kind of, you know, these prejudicial feelings, they said the judge ruled that's right, that the biological mother and the anonymous sperm donor are the legal parents to this child. And, you know, non-bio mom who's been no, raising this child forever, you <laughs> right. know, nope, you have no parental rights. Like, absolutely mind-blowing. And that was upheld on the appellate level in the Mississippi, in Mississippi, and only in the Mississippi Supreme Court did they reverse it. And that was 2017. Like, this isn't a case that's, like, 20, 30 years ago. These are cases that keep happening by judges where they, they don't get it. You know, it, when we talk about these custody cases, and um, and that's actually a case I was talking to my staff about the other day, is that that's, uh, you know, divorce is not a lot of fun anyway, but I just, it's, 
it's always mind numbing to me that people will use children as this tool to hurt the other parent. And just because you didn't birth a a baby or it's not your genetic material doesn't mean you don't have this parental attachment or this, you know what I mean? it's It's horrible to make that judgment just based on genetics. And so we have issues, you know, we talk about as you know, we have anonymous donors and we have directed donors and directed donors are directed or known donors are known to the um, intended um, recipients. And so we get in that can get complicated, too, with respect to uh, where let's say a couple is doing home insemination with a known donor that's unscreened. <laughs> You know, this is one of my favorite topics. So they're just using fresh ejaculate at home, syringe, turkey base, or whatever. And then this donor thinks that they're off the hook for financial support <laughs> if challenged in court. Is that? Because no. we we truly try to send all of our directed donors to you to make sure oh. that they are covered <laughs> with respect to what their responsibilities are yeah. emotionally and legally and financially. And first, I want to say like, yay to directed donors. Like, I yeah. think, I mean, the anonymous kind of the framework that we've had for so many years does have certain challenges that have made things really hard where DNA tests now, you you will find out. So I think, you know, there there's just been this like, there's donors now who are, you know, people who are donor conceived that have like this big right to know movement about right to biological information. So I feel like known donations really super, you know, are nice that so you avoid those issues. Like all the information's out there. People know that. But um, home insemination. So the law varies state to state. And in Colorado, we have a statute that's uh, 194106 that says you must conceive under the supervision of a licensed physician or advanced practice nurse. And if you don't conceive under those circumstances, then you don't fall within the statute, which means you might not be recognized as a parent or more, you know, scary for the donor, he might be recognized as a parent and might be on the hook for child support. And often parties are like, well, I know, I know, we know each other, we oh, trust yeah. each other. Mm-hmm. So I always, and we always mm-hmm. like to point to the Kansas case. So there's mm-hmm. this can the, the Kansas Craigslist case, we often call it, where um, <laughs> there was a same-sex couple and they went on Craigslist to find a donor they found someone. They did an at-home contract. You know, so at least they good like points for doing a contract, even though like, you really should have attorneys to tell you what the law was. <laughs> um, so I think the donor thought he was fine. I think the moms thought they were fine. But then one of them had some health issues. She went on disability. And at that point, the state of Kansas, I think, was looking for money. And they went after the donor saying that you owe child support. So even though all of the parties agreed who the parents were, the state of Kansas says, you did not follow our statute, which is similar to Colorado. They said you had to be under a licensed physician. So they no supervision, not a donor, your dad, you owe child support. And then non-biological mom was like left in the cold as not being recognized as a legal parent. So I will tell you like from our like attorneys in my area, like so many of them like dedicated their time and energy to fight this pro bono. And ultimately on the appellate level, they did rule that the other, that the non-biological, non-biologically related mom had greater rights to being a parent than the donor. But I mean, I tell people like, what if, she, what if it was a single mom? Like they, you mm-hmm. wouldn't even have that argument. Like poor, like donors, donors like on the hook for child support mm-hmm. for 18 mm-hmm. years. 
Yeah, and and we we try to protect the directed donors because they come in. You know, it's it they're it's a big deal. Like you said, hats off to these these people who are doing this because it's involved and it's a lot of time and energy for them to do that. Even if they're not paying for it, if the recipients are paying for it, it's still we want to make sure that they understand really what they're getting into and make sure that they've discussed what their legal protections are um, because sometimes it's you know. They don't want co-parenting. They just are like, I'm just a donor. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want, and some want legal rights. And then I'm like, well, then you need to set that up. And of course we give them your name, but, um, <laughs> you know, but Thank we you. have, yeah. But what do you think about all these cases where you have these sperminators flying around the country and oh. what is with this? There's the, what's the, what's the fella? He's an attorney even. Um, oh, there's an attorney one? Yes, oh, he's an I... attorney, and he he his his latest I don't know I don't want to use their con- conquest, but he puts he puts it out there, and he's what we call live cover <laughs> or fresh ejaculate unscreened. I don't know, maybe he tests himself often. I don't know, um, but the people have to be at least eighteen, I guess, because that's a good. magic number. Good, and um, <laughs> at least that. <laughs> The one of his latest pregnancies is with a an eighteen year old who is on government support, and was so excited to have his baby, and he was so excited talking it up in the media. And I'm trying to figure out what his financial obligations are. I do know that at least four women have sued him for child support. And oh, oh, oh! You're talking about the math professor in New York, is that? Yeah, this is a different guy though. But oh, really? Maybe it might be because he's one. very because it, maybe it's just very similar. But there is this um, sperminator. I don't know. You know, one of I these. Don't, that's what they call themselves. <laughs> what wow. was there? There's some other term I heard too. Oh, I can't think of it. But um, but yeah, there was a, there was a big one that was in. So Ari Nagel is the professor out of New York that um, has been all over the news, and he's been. I feel like I haven't seen as much recently about him, but he donates his sperm and he talks about um, donating in like Target bathrooms and, yes. you know. Yes, yes. I remember and, the story. Um, and I mean, the other part, like nat- he, they talk about natural insemination, a.k.a. having sex with your mm-hmm. recipient, which mm-hmm. under any statute is not within the donor realm at all. Like you, your, your dad, like your like a mm-hmm. one night, you know, a hookup, like you're still legal dad. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I know in his case, I've heard of at least like four or five cases where he is obligated to pay child support. And his got even more interesting. There was a part where he was flying to Israel to donate there. And mm. he ended up getting banned because under Israeli law, you have to be either anonymous or you have to be supporting the child. So that, which I thought was really fascinating. So since he wasn't actually... Um, taking that role of supporting and parenting the child, and he wasn't anonymous to these women, they banned him from donating anymore in the country. So it was kind of impressive to get banned from a whole country from donating. Yeah, that kind of gives me glee, though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, and then one of the last things, you know, that we worked on together recently is posthumous um, parenting or donating. You and I definitely... Um, have had a lot of conversations around this. And uh, as you know, consent for us is critical. Um, consent of the donor is critical. And if somebody is on life support or has recently passed, they can't give consent. 
And so talk a little bit about how the conversations we've had, how this has evolved and yeah, I, it's definitely, um, a really fascinating area to consider. Can you conceive children from the genetics of someone who has passed? And now the technology is certainly there, not only to conceive using cryopreserved sperm or eggs or embryos that they may have um, had cryopreserved during their lifetime, but also I know we've talked about this, you can do postmortem retrieval, mm-hmm. where even if they hadn't had those reproductive cells removed from their body during their lifetime, there's a short period of 24 hours or so where you can have them retrieved. And I've, you know, there's been a number of cases where the love can sometimes the spouse or a fiance or even the parents are, you know, asking that their now deceased loved one have their reproductive material retrieved from their body. And um, one of the big cases recently was of a West Point cadet mm-hmm. in New York who was in a ski accident and was on life support. And his parents requested that his um, his sperm be retrieved for the purpose of conception later. And I mean, the really fascinating part in that case was that, you know, he wasn't married. There wasn't like a natural, there wasn't like a partner asking to conceive with these. It was the parents. And they argue that partially it was, it was cultural, but it was so important for them to have this um, genetic continuation, biological continuation or legacy or some of the, the words I've heard. And I will say when I often all give these talks on these, on these issues, and there is this YouTube video by Irie Rosenblum in Israel, who started the BioWill. And mm-hmm. if you go on YouTube and type Irie Rosenblum BioWill, there is this like amazing video where she talks about how um, for military extreme sports mm-hmm. enthusiasts, etc., they can um, donate their material to be used after their conception. Like really, really taking that thought, you know, as a very legitimate thing that people people want their their biological continuation to happen after their death. But it's so it's so complicated, right? Because if you that wasn't your intention, then you know, even in the the New York case, they he he didn't say he didn't sign anything specifically. Right. He didn't have consent that said, I want my genetics used after my death. Right. But they pointed to like, well, he always talked about having kids. Mm-hmm. He always talked about having a family. But then often people want to make the distinction and a very fair distinction, like, well, having kids that you raise and it's during your lifetime is very different than mm-hmm. having your genetics taken for children after your death. Yeah. So yeah. thoughts mm-hmm. of interesting, complicated issues in the area. Right. And I, and we of course get not a ton of calls, but enough that, you know, we are often the bad guy in that episode because we have, it's usually um, either a young married or fiance or girlfriend Parents call us, my boyfriend, husband, fiance, whatever, was in an accident on life support, and we'd like to retrieve his sperm to be used later. And I say, great, do you have consent, something in writing that allows me to do that, that that was his intent, it was to have children with you? Well, no, but we have conversations. And I said, that's hearsay, can't do that. I need something in writing. I, we have to go off of consent. And then they get upset. Uh I think I had one couple that had just seen a a fertility specialist and had consult. And I was like, that's good enough. Right. I mean, they were, they were there. I said, okay, we have it in writing that he signed, you know, this consent to proceed on these procedures that they were going to be doing. And 
did physician it say, notes. Did it say consent for after his death? It didn't, though, see? But so... I mean, for both sides. So even... Oh, I hear you. Ar- I mean, 100%. One, so one couple that was successful, there was this Iowa case where... Um, Fiance was on life support and the fiance is like, oh, we wanted to have kids. And the parents were absolutely on board. And the, you know, the hospital's like, no, without a, a court order. And they were able to get a court order. And the big mm-hmm. kicker was they got an affidavit from one of the drafters of UAGA, which is the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act, arguing that UAGA did cover sperm so of course like if someone dies like there's pretty loose um standards of who can make that decision for you under the uniform anatomical gift act so if i die and my family they're asking my family like oh are you next of kin which again is like pretty loose like i could be a child right and it would apply to a child and you can donate your liver your lungs your heart etc and that's what uaga is generally used for but in this case they argued that applied to sperm too. So of course, parents can make the decision about the tissue or organs of their soon-to-be deceased son. Yes, but I specifically remember uh, speaking with Colorado uh, on that issue for um, organ donation, and they specifically left it out because of the complications of that tissue, because it's the only tissue you donate that has inheritance rights, right? Mm-hmm. You know, your liver doesn't inherit in a state and your cornea and your ligaments, but your, your DNA does. And I think that was the real defining point for them, that they're, they're not going to consider a transplantable tissue and not going to put it on the list. And so the far, other, I, although the yeah. technology is now that you can take a skin cell, right, and turn it into a sperm or an ova. Well, so. <laughs> that came, I think that came out of Japan and it wasn't repeatable so oh no I've i don't think the research more was more. oh oh i've been seeing i've been seeing articles lately that they've been advancing on that so we'll see well <clears throat> then i guess your liver could you know inherit in the state but yes exactly the, the the issue would be um for us is that there's fda involved right because this is mm-hmm. a tissue that is fda regulated and if for instance this cadet did not have a sexually intimate partner. They retrieved his sperm and then they're going to use an an oocyte donor or not, or they have to have an egg in there somewhere. And then somebody has to carry that pregnancy. But all of those people involved will have not been sexually intimate with this cadet. And so FDA has something to say about that because if you're not a sexually intimate partner, you fall under the directed donor or known donor statute and you have to be screened and quarantined and so in so how is that even possible to get around fda especially with that incident with this cadet because specifically fda was in my lab inspecting us when that happened i brought that story up to the investigator oh, what did they say he said oh well uh we're gonna have a meeting about this when i get back Ooh. and i he said this is not <laughs> his take was this is not how our regulation reads and yeah. so I think emotionally it helps people maybe move forward or maybe not. Maybe it holds them in the past. I have mixed feelings about that. You and I have discussed this in great length. Yeah. But in the end, it may be even a bigger letdown because they're denied because of other regulations besides just consent that won't yeah. allow this tissue to be utilized. So in that regard, we <laughs> came up with a contract that we now have on our website <laughs> and we encourage yes. all young men to download it and fill it out <laughs> and sign it and have it notorized w- and women, have it on women file. Women too. 
Women too. Women too. Oh, yes, more complicated, absolutely, absolutely. But absolutely women too. But yeah. if you have any intention that you want your genetic reproductive material to be yes. used after your death, please sign something so that there aren't these legal complications yes. for your family. Yes, and be clear about it. Um, yes. But yeah, so, you know, I don't want to end on a on a downer. <laughs> on but the, uh, the I do, death note. The, the death note. But I think it takes us full circle, right? And so that's that's an important piece for our listeners to understand is that it's not as easy as just a sperm and an egg meeting and, you know, let's do this. So, oh, you know, something I was going to bring up, which is not third party, well, partially. So have you seen all these articles now that, um, that sperm count across the world has dropped by over 50%. I think you're going to need security guards, Betsy, at your sperm bank. Like you're going to have like solid gold. Like the last like hope for the hu- for humanity is going to be in your sperm bank. Oh, well, thanks. You know, <laughs> it is so strange that you bring that up because I was actually having that same thought was, oh no, <laughs> yeah. we're going to have to put up barbed wire fence and get I'm double pictures to uh-huh. patrol That's our right lab, thing. you know, forget the camera thing, you know. Um, but you know, it's true, though, and Ellen, you and I have talked about it, and I've been saying this, I've been in this world for almost 34 years, and sperm production is declining. It is a fact. And I, I don't, you know, in the animal I've industry. Heard, I've heard yeah. plastics, but what's your, do you have any thoughts? Oh, it's so multifactorial, though, right? Yeah. Because you have so many environmental factors. You have genetic factors. I mean, you know, you have people that we're able to let them have, you know, they're able to genetically reproduce, whereas decades ago, this wouldn't have happened for them, right? And we have some genetic issues, you know, things that are are inherited. And reproduction, even though lowly inherited, can be one of them. So you have that. You have diet. You have obesity. You have definitely environmental exposures like plastics, for sure, you know. And evolutionarily, things might just be slowing down because maybe the planet's getting too full. I don't know. I, I don't think really anybody knows. But I will tell you, it is on the decline, for sure. Yeah. Get, you know, get those we, dogs. <laughs> yeah, the next Ocean's yeah. Eleven will be about breaking into a sperm Yes, bank. a sperm bank. Uh, yes. <laughs> great. Absolutely. I got, no, I, thanks. I Ocean's Eleven plus one. for a while now on that. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, this has been very uh, enlightening, and I'm pretty sure people are are fascinated by the complexities because really in this short podcast we've just skimmed the top and, yeah, and Ellen absolutely. you know that for sure but um, again I want to thank you for being here being in our corner and helping people get where they need to get as legally as possible well thanks for having me I would have never thought of posthumous, uh, you know, genetic collection. Like I would have never thought to. Gosh, he's dead now. I'd like to have his babies. I know. I, I know. mean, this, this, these thoughts would have never occurred to me. So it's a. I think I don't know. We get these, we do get these calls. Yeah. Um, not daily, but I'll bet you we get to a year, which is a lot, really. It and is. they're always on weekends, right? And, um, I mean, not always, but a lot and I always have to be the bearer of bad news Mm -hmm. and there was this one case decades ago I was uh, still teach I was teaching at UNC and one of my students a friend of hers who was all of 19 and married young married 
uh, her husband was uh, testing a small little um, road bike that he had built for the neighbor's kid. And he was taking it just down the road for a short spin and popped a wheelie and hit his head. Wasn't wearing a helmet, but just, I mean, it's low to the ground, popped, and he was lucid and everything. And they said, well, we should, we should take you to the hospital. So they call an ambulance. He's lucid, talking, everything in the ambulance, and he codes. Okay. And so by the time they get to the hospital, he's put on life support and he's brain dead. It's just a freak accident. Yeah. Right. And my f student had told her about what I do and said, you should call her. He, we can, they can store his sperm. So I get the calls the weekend and I'm a hard no on this, right? Cause I don't have written consent. She called every news agency in the state of Colorado. I had every channel calling me on my doorstep. Everybody, what are you doing? This is so horrible. I went on the Tom Green show to talk about it, uh, the morning show. Wow. And I had to explain to them that this is, there was no consent here, right? And it's, it's a huge issue. Mm -hmm. And it's a, she wasn't channeling her grief. You know, it was a difficult thing. She's 19. Mm -hmm. And for me to say to her, you'll find love again. It's not something she needed to hear, yeah. but hanging on to his genetics wasn't going to bring him back mm. and that's i think what's her goal and so there's there's this layer of emotional stuff that happens and that's why ellen and i came up with this contract that really is on pragam's website that you can download to say these are my wishes and demands in case i'm incapacitated yeah i think that's a great idea there was a whole bunch that she talked about that it just was eye-opening to me because i know nothing about reproductive law you know and, and right. all the stuff that goes with it so right um and of course it all falls under the umbrella of reproductive health <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah yeah i think that you know it's never a dull moment always things in litigation contracts are written as tight as they can but they can always be broken and um it's really interesting how some judges will define family and and some yeah, there's so much others. that goes. I mean, every every one of the cases she talked about, there were just so many different factors and so many mm -hmm. different things complicating them. Just like, wow, there's there's a lot of different laws that, that pertain to all of this and a lot of different things that go into it. So did you get crazy. the sense that men were discriminated against a For little sure. bit? Oh, in parenting? Didn't you think that was oh, interesting? Yeah. Well, I, that It's interesting, but it doesn't surprise me much. Right. You know, I, but, but yeah, it's very interesting that it's it's so obviously there well i hope our listeners really enjoyed that yeah because I, I know i, I did, did. <laughs> jinx oh me a coat this podcast was created to promote look both ways in the textbook written by dr cairo Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with a mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens. Textbooks used at schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools interested in piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we're always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, getting a textbook donated to you, or to make a donation, please visit lookbothways.us. 
That's L-O-O-K-B-O-T-H-W-A-Y-S dot U-S. This podcast was produced by Peach Islander Productions in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Mandy Johnson and Dr. B wishing you well. Be sure and catch all our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>